Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and that we can, in fact, rely on your word. And Lord, you have promised that as your word is proclaimed, as it goes forth, uh, that it will accomplish those things for which you have spoken it. And so, Lord, we, we trust right now that, um, that we are not good listeners and I am not a good preacher, but your word is the power of God unto salvation. And so, Lord, we trust that promise right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I was told I cannot preach long today because of the potluck afterwards and all that, all the smells coming out of the kitchen. We'll see if that's true. Galatians chapter 3, and we'll begin at reading at verse 19. Galatians 3, 19. Actually, we can start at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, through faith. The, that's the word of the, the Lord. Now, over the last few weeks, we have been walking through the Lord's reasons why you should not trust the law for your justification. He's been giving us over and over and over and over pretty simple, helpful, straightforward, but lots of them, reasons for why you should not trust the law for your justification. Now, justification, as we've been seeing, is your standing before God. Put it this way, if, God were, if you were to stand before God, end of time, the books were open, and God says, just or unjust, if he says, guilty or innocent, why would he say that about you? Are you going to be called innocent or righteous? Or, on the other hand, are you going to be declared guilty, cursed, condemned? And so God gives us over and over so many reasons why you should not trust your obedience to the law of God to be justified, to be declared righteous. You don't want God to count that. When he is uh, deciding to whether or not to let you into his heaven, to adopt you, to receive you, when he is considering that, you do not want him to consider in any way what you have done in obedience to the law. Instead, you want him to consider only what Christ did. 
And so we've been looking at reasons why you don't want this. You don't want God to consider the law for your justification. Paul included things like obedience to the Ten Commandments, which were summarized by loving God and loving neighbor in a package he calls law. He also included male circumcision, which marked the nation which Abraham, uh, which came from Abraham and then that produced Jesus. Uh, who, who, uh, he included your genetic relationship to Abraham in this package he called law. He includes the food and holiness laws in the Old Testament in that package too. He summarizes all these things as law or he even calls it the flesh. Referring to things about you that commend you to God. And you could say, what does this mean? In your justification, if God were to look at you for whether to declare you guilty or innocent. And so Paul calls all that, he summarizes all that as the law, or he, another word for it, he summarizes that as the flesh. Things about you. Things about yourself that you might say, here is why God would accept me. Or here's why I can expect to receive a blessing or inheritance from God. And through Paul's pen, God has given us wave after wave of reasons for a burdened soul who has run to Jesus to have confidence that they will in fact be welcomed as a child. That Christ's life really was sufficient to count as their obedience before God. And that the death of Christ really was horrible enough. It was really damned enough. It was really cursed enough to be the punishment for also your sins. So that if you are in Christ by faith, there is no condemnation for you. Christ's resurrection from the dead was God's proof that Jesus was actually really perfect and that he had really died for your sins, no matter how great they are. So, of course, that leaves this burning question which Paul helpfully answers for us and asks. Paul's great at asking good questions and then answering them, isn't he? The burning question is this. Man, you, man Paul, you, you really have taken Mr. Law out and beaten him up really good. You must really hate the law of God, Paul. Okay, Paul, why then the law? It's a good question. And this is uh, our first point, and we'll say the law was added. See this with me in verse 19. Why then the law, says Paul? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, you may have noticed, but you, can, you may not have noticed, sorry, but you can be sure that Paul's opponents, those false teachers, they did notice that Paul starts by saying that the law was added. It was an addition. It was a later addition to something already established by God. So that Judaizers, this is Paul's main uh, group of opponents here, these false teachers, they were very happy to point out that the law of Moses came before Jesus' crucifixion by 1,600 years. Law before gospel. The gospel, they said, was at, the, the gospel was added to the real thing, the law. Paul says, no, Moses and his law came after Abraham and his gospel promises that God gave to him by 430 years. 
the law was added. And what was it added to? The law, of course, was added to the promise that God made. The promise that we've actually already seen is a massive promise of God that included a lovely cluster of promises, such as forgiveness, justification by faith, adoption as sons for Abraham, and a, a people of all nations who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, land inheritance in order to enjoy this wonderful relationship with God. This was a promise made by God to Abraham, and as we've already seen, it is the possession of all who share God, uh, Abra Abraham's gospel faith in Abraham's God, in spite of their law performance or birth parents. Yes, there would be an heir from Abraham's flesh, who would be the ultimate heir, and those blessings of this great heir that he inherits will be shared with everybody who has faith, Abraham's faith, in Abraham's God. Now, sometimes he's talking about promises, sometimes he's talking about promise. Why is this? Well, these, these promises were bundled together as the promise. Just as I made a cluster of promises to Lana on our wedding day, a bunch of them. But it is also good because of the nature of marriage to say I made a promise to Lana that day. I can refer to my wedding vows as the vow I made to Lana that day. And so we have the promise, and in that promise is a whole bunch of promises summarized by the promise. And the promise came before the law. And the law was added to it. Now you might say, hold on a minute. That needs a little explanation because the law of God has always existed, in a sense, because the law of God is simply a declaration of what's holy and what's not holy, what's good and what's evil. That was before Abraham, of course. That was before the, the promise given to Abraham. What, things like what lines up with the character of God and what are the things that God hates. Is that what Paul's talking about? No, it's not. What Paul is speaking about is the law, he's speaking of the, the law as the covenant which God delivered to Moses 430 years after Abraham received the promise. Years after Abraham received this promise, you might remember, Abram's family was sent to Egypt to escape a famine. And once they were there, there was a pharaoh that took the throne who forgot about how they got there and how God put them there. And he enslaved them, and they were enslaved there for 400 years. And it was then, once a large group of people, God formed them into a nation, and by mighty miracles, God destroyed the Pharaoh, and he punished Egypt, and he rescued Israel from their slavery. And once out of Egypt, God brought them to Mount Sinai, where they received from God through Moses many laws and ceremonies which marked them as the nation of God who held the promises and was waiting for that great heir to come and pay for their sin and destroy sin for them. Ceremonies, sacrifices, festivals, cleanliness laws, civil laws for governing a nation, food laws, clothing laws, so many laws. So much that this could be characterized this as the book of the law. Even though there 
were many laws in it, and it also included many wonderful promises, this book of the law. But it was so law-heavy that it was called the book of the law, or even shortened to the law. And so God adds this after giving the promise to, a- to Abraham. Now, is God changing that covenant he made to Abraham? Is he now saying that for a while people related to him based on, on, on grace, but then after that, for a while, it's, you know, we relate to him based on obedience to the law. Is that what's going on? No. Paul already killed that idea in the previous verses when he said you don't change a covenant once it's been ratified, once it's officially been put in place. The law was added to the gospel promise, not to change it, not to replace it, but to help accomplish God's goals of the gospel promise that he gave to Abraham. And the word added here, it alludes to a side road. So you have the gospel, that promise God gave to Abraham, and then you have this side road called the law. It was added. It was an additional thing. Not an additional way to God, Paul says. No. But as an on-ramp to the gospel, as something that's going to throw people at the gospel. On-ramp to the only road that a person can have access to God, and that is by faith in God's gospel promises. So, Paul is saying here, the law served the purpose of the promise. It was subservient to the promise. It was to serve the promise. It was added because of the transgressions. We're going to hold that thought for a little bit because Paul is going to address very clearly with some really wonderful illustrations. We're going to see what he means when it says it was added, the law was added because of the transgressions. But we see here it was added for a short period of time, that the book of the law. It was added until the time when the solo heir of Abraham would come. So the law of God, the the character law of God, is always going to remain because it always expresses those things that line up with God's heart, things that are like him and things that are not like him, things that he loves and things that he hates. But the book of the law with all those sacrifices and ceremonies and cleanliness laws and food laws, the book which highlights the law of God was a temporary measure to serve the purpose of the gospel, inheritance, and also temporarily. It was put in place to mark them as people who were waiting for the heir that had not yet come. But now that he's come... You shouldn't be marked as the people who are waiting for the heir that hasn't come because the heir has come. Now, this is actually God's MO, this idea of of law coming after promise. First, God establishes his family by giving them a promise and then giving them commands to guard and shape them as promise trusters to show what it would be like to live as people who are God's family by faith. God did not bring Israel to Mount Sinai to receive the book of the law until after he had redeemed them from Egypt. Did you ever think about that? What comes first, God rescuing them from Pharaoh or giving them the law? Which came first? Oh, he rescued them from Pharaoh before he gave them the law. And oh, did he rescue them from Pharaoh. Very powerfully and terrifyingly. 
In fact, when God gives the Ten Commandments, which is the heart of the book of the law, he starts it by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives them the commandments. This is God's MO. Gospel, promise, salvation, and then that law. So it was added <laughs> to the gospel. Second point is this. The law was put in place to guard the inheritance until the heir would come. And so as we've already seen, if you can do some math, you, it, it was about 2,000 years after Abraham's promise that God made to him that Jesus, the heir of Abraham, finally actually came. All right? The law was added to guard that promise until he came. And it was, it was there so that they would not think that they were earning it, that they somehow deserved it. And it was also there to demonstrate that the heir had not yet come, for them to think that they had not, uh, they have not produced that heir. None of them should have thought they were worthy that they were the worthy singular heir that God had promised Abraham's blessings to. And the law made sure that anybody paying attention didn't think that they were God's children by their own work. Now, some people did, but they weren't paying close enough attention to the law. Yes, they were holders of that promise. Israel was the holders of that promise because the heir was promised to come from Israel from Abraham's flesh. But they would not inherit the promise simply because they were the flesh of Abraham, but only if they had the faith in, in, uh, in the promises that God made to Abraham's singular heir. Now, how did the law guard that inheritance until the heir would come? How did God ensure that there would be a people trusting in that promise to that heir? The book of the law, or the law, which highlighted and drew attention to and focused on God's holy character. And it also drew a lot of attention to the sin and uncleanness of the people of God. You can't escape that fact if you read those first five books of the Bible, the, the book of the law. You see over and over, there's so much attention drawn to the sin and uncleanness of the people and the holiness of God. And the law was a master at that. The book of the law was a master, like the law of God on steroids, really uh, showing this. And one of the things that the law was especially very good at doing was showing that the promises that God made, the covenant of God, was contra-conditional. Contra-conditional. That's not, some, not a word that you, you find that you hear very often. It was contra-conditional. And it wasn't conditional and it wasn't unconditional. It was contra-conditional. And the law was very good at showing these things. Conditional, if the law, if the promises were conditional, it would, it would say that these promises are yours only if you meet these conditions. If you do as I say, if you earn them, that would be conditional, right? We all know those kinds of promises. We make them sometimes. We receive them. Conditional promises. If you do X, I will give you Y. I promise. But then there's unconditional promises. And that would mean that these promises are yours and there's no conditions, there's no judgment, there's no expectations, there's no holiness. I don't punish people. That would be unconditional. But with 
Abraham's promises over and over again, in the gospel, you get something better than both of those. You get contra-conditional. It means that there are requirements and punishments for breaking God's covenants. But God would himself meet those conditions on your behalf, and he'd also take the punishment for you breaking them. And God demonstrated that this is the promise, the kind of promise he was making to Abraham when he gave him the promise. You might recall that when God gave this covenant promise to Abraham, God tells him to get a bunch of animals and then to cut them in half and then to make a, a gauntlet, essentially. Dead animal, half of a dead animal on one side, half a dead animal on the other side, and there's this this, 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 uh, uh, this gauntlet of death, like a bowling alley, and both gutters are death. And this was a covenant promise ceremony that was very familiar at the day. And so what would happen is a great king would make promises to a little king, and they would make these mutual promises to one another. And then what you would expect is that little king would walk down that gauntlet in between those gutters of death, and what that king was saying is, if I break these promises... Let it be to me as happened to these animals. And so God makes these promises to Abraham. And then you're going to expect, everybody's watching, is going to expect Abraham's going to walk this aisle promising that if that covenant is broken, on him would be the curses. But before Abraham could get up and do that, God puts him to sleep. And God walks through that gauntlet. And so he was saying, my promises are not conditional, nor are they unconditional. They're contra-conditional. If my promise, if, you're, if, if you fail in this covenant with me, I will bear the curse. And so, we know that when the heir came, when Abraham's great heir to these, prom these promises were made to, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was also the one through that he was also the one who would bear the curses of the covenant being broken that God had made to Abraham. He was the substitute. And the book of the law that magnifies and highlights the law of God, that was given to ensure the heir would have co-heirs. And those would be co-heirs by faith rather than by flesh. The book of the law and its sacrifices and ceremonies and, and the curses and all those things attached to it is saying, you will not inherit this because you deserve it. Do not trust in the flesh. Trust the one who will take the curse for you and keep the law for you. And so this was the role of the law, is to make sure that when the heir did inherit, that he'd have people who would inherit with him by faith, people who were not foolish enough to think that they would do it on their own, but by faith in God's promise. Which brings us to the third point. The law exposes sin that it cannot cure. The law exposes sin it cannot cure. We'll read 19 and 20 together. Why then the law? It was added because of, the tra because of transgressions until the offspring should come by to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All right. 
So the book of the law, the law of Moses, it was put in place very publicly. This is what he's referring to, put in place by intermediaries and angels. There was this ceremony in which Israel received the Ten Commandments and the book of the law. They were brought to Mount Sinai. And as they were getting ready to, to receive this covenant from, from God, the, the book of the law, Moses is, is going to go up the mountain, but they're prepared. And so they get super prepared. They wash and they wash and they wash. They wash their clothes. They wash their bodies. They are so clean. The most nervous mom would be very happy with how clean these people were. They were super, super clean. They even did extra things, like they, they even abstained from sexual relations for a while. They were like, they're so ready to meet the Lord. They're so holy. They are so pure. They are spotless. And then thunder and lightning and shaking of the ground, and the Lord's holiness is made visible. They have never been more pure and more clean and they were filled with gladness. They were so happy to see the thunder and lightning of God. And they realized how holy they were. And they knew they stood before God perfect and holy. That's not what happened. <laughs> That's the opposite of what happened. They were not happy. They were not clean as they were. They didn't think they were clean. None of them felt clean. We'll read in Exodus chapter 20 verse 18 what really happened. Clean and pure as they were. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses told, said to the people, do not fear for the Lord has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood off while Moses drew near from to thick darkness where God was, thus far God's word. The people would have stood before God trembling because of their sin that he revealed when he came and visited them on that mountain. The holiness of God damns those who have sinned. They are exposed as being unholy and sinful and guilty. And how wise was God to have them first clean themselves up as best they could. And then in that state, see how unholy they were in relation to God's holiness. The law was added after the gospel because of the transgressions. To expose transgressions so people do, wouldn't trust in their righteousness, so that they didn't trust their own record, so they wouldn't trust their ethnicity. What good was it for an Israelite to wear clean clothes before God at that moment? Nothing. What good was it for them to have kept kosher before that moment? Nothing. What good was it for them to be ethnically related to Abraham, standing naked and exposed before a holy God. Did it make them holy? Not one bit. So it reveals sin. There's another way that the law, the law exposes sin. It, ex, it, it, it provokes it. The law provokes it. It doesn't cause it, but it provokes it. It doesn't tempt people, but the law provokes 
sin. In Romans 7, verse 7 to 12, we're not going to take time to read that right now. This is what Paul gets at. And so that leads me to believe that this is what he's getting at here. The law provokes sin. And the book of the law did this on steroids. It doesn't make you sin. It doesn't make you sinful. It's kind of like taking a culture of tissue, which may have bacteria or virus on it. And what do you do if you're trying to take and make a culture of this? What you do is you put it in the environment where it's most likely to replicate and multiply so that you can see what's actually there. Trying to culture a bacteria doesn't put that bacteria there. What does it do? It multiplies. It exposes what was already there. The problem to expose the problem. And Jesus Christ was very clear that sin is not... So that, that sin is is not something that comes into us from what we do or the people we're around. It comes from the inside. It comes from the heart. Which is why even refraining from your neighbor, uh, from killing your neighbor, doesn't mean you're not guilty before God. We sin because we are sinners. Because it's in our hearts. And the law of God provokes those actions, those sinful actions, not by putting fresh sin in us, but causing us to walk out the sin that was actually there to show the problem so that you would know that you are guilty and that you would run to a Savior. Not that you became guilty by killing your neighbor, but that, that showed that you already were guilty. You had a sinful heart capable of doing such a thing. Another way that the, Lord, that, that the law provokes sin is by exposing a hatred of God. Exposing the eneminess of our hearts toward God. Many people, and you're going to meet lots of people, you might even be one, say that they love God. They would perhaps even say they, they love the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the, the Jesus God. They love Jesus. You see this on the news all the time. I'm the one who loves Jesus. You guys don't love Jesus. I'm the Jesus person, the Jesus person. But God's love, God's law, sorry, exposes God's character, doesn't it? And therefore, it exposes sin that, the sin that underlies every sin. And that sin is that our hearts do not love God. So when God's character is exposed in His law, it shows we are condemned. It, it evokes the expression of the truth that a person, a person actually despises God. I'll give you an example. Might have this conversation with somebody. They might say, I love God. Oh, do you? Yes, I do. Well, Jesus hates divorce and he calls it sin for you to have divorced your wife for any reason other than her committing adultery against you. And the person would respond, Well, I don't love that God. I hate him for getting in the way of what I want. I want a divorce. I don't believe in that God. You see how the, the law provoked that sin, that saying, I, I hate that God, even though it didn't cause it. Somebody might say, I love God. Oh, do you? And Jesus hates abortion. He hates the killing of a baby in the womb of a mother, even if that pregnancy was accidental or perhaps even the result of a sin. Well, that's not my God. I don't love that God. Now, maybe you are seeing this in your own heart. Maybe there's a, a command from God which your heart actually despises. 
you read a command from God in, in the Scriptures and you absolutely cannot stand it. You don't love it at all. Oh, dear friend, do not be surprised. <laughs> that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the Bible. It doesn't mean that. This is the law doing its work. This is good. It exposes your need for a salvation from Christ. Salvation is not needed just because you do bad things that you know are bad things. But because you have a heart that has a hatred of the true God and of God's character. And the law of God expresses His character. And so, dear friend, when you feel that, that animosity toward God, when you read a command of His that you don't like, when you feel that, when you come across a law from God you despise, do not run from Him. Let that medicine do its good work. It has just exposed the truth that you are just like all men and women and your heart itself is sinful and that God has provided a Savior for you and that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the end goal of the law, keeping his people from false saviors. Not competing with the gospel, but holding, restraining people, imprisoning them from pursuing eternal life in any other way than in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will not let them go except to Christ. And this is that fourth and final point. The law guarded and disciplined God's people from seeking false saviors. Let's read in verses 21 to 26. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, you're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Thus far, God's word. I wonder if you notice those two illustrations, two images of the purpose of Mr. Law. The prison guard and the guardian. We'll start with the prison guard. Held captive under the law, says Paul. So the law kept guard like a, a sentinel, like a, a prison guard, so that people would not escape prison and think somehow that they were free. That they stood before God as innocent by their own flesh. Every time a person was tempted to think they were justified by their own righteousness, not guilty, the prison guard, the law, reminds them that they are held captive and, by sin and they are guilty before God so that they don't go looking for false saviors. See, other religions are those false saviors, a promise. They, they promise to, a way to get to God by the things that we do. And the law reminds us that we are not freed by those religions. It keeps us from feeling free in self-righteousness. It makes anybody trusting in their own self-righteousness, it, it causes them to realize that they're not free and they are not righteous. 
And then it's also the guardian, the guardian. Now this, back in Paul's day, was a servant or slave assigned to a child. And this person's job was to make sure that the child didn't run away, to make sure that the child didn't act dangerously, made sure that the child went to school to learn and to grow, and who was to prepare them to be ready to inherit their inheritance. The book of the law was put in place after the promise of the gospel, as we've seen, so that God's people would be corrected from thinking they didn't need to wait for that perfect solo heir. It disciplined them from running after false saviors. Think about this. Every single time they ran to false saviors, to false idols, the gods of the nations, the prophets would come, and what would they use to expose Israel's sin and the stupidity of running to these idols in in self-centered religion? What would they use? Those prophets would use the law. It kept them from running to foolish false saviors. It kept them from thinking that the law had somehow been fulfilled until it was fulfilled, until the Savior had come. Until Israel could say, and all who trusted in the promise given to Abraham, the law has finally been fulfilled. Because it had the eternal law of God remained. But the book of the law, which it's, with its focus on the law and the laws, the fact that the law hadn't yet been kept and that there was still punishments to be made, that was temporary until the heir would come to keep the people from seeking false messiahs. Dear brothers and sisters, the law of God is perfect and beautiful as Roger read for us this morning. It shows goodness and what real joy is. It reveals God's character and his holiness. Do not reject the law of God. But dear brothers and sisters, let it have its rightful place. Not as a savior. Not a way way to gain confidence that God loves you and has accepted you. Not a way to earn God's answers to your prayers. Definitely not as a co-savior with Christ, not as a competitor to the gospel. Let it do its work to expose your sin, to show the foolishness of man's religions from cleansing you and drive you into the arms of the Savior, the promised solo heir of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shares his inheritance with those who trust in his qualifications for that inheritance, who bore the curses of the law for those who inherit by faith what could only rightly be claimed by him. The law is good. It also shows you when you're not acting or thinking or speaking like an heir. Sometimes you need the law, a Christian needs the law to say, wait, am I not an heir? These things are not what heirs should do. I need to stop doing them. I'm redeemed. I am now a child of God, not an enemy of God. Dear brothers and sisters, the law of God will keep coming up in the word of God and your conscience, and it is good, so do not ignore it. But do not use it to justify yourself. Too many times I speak with people who really are counting on Christ's work 
and their own obedience to stand before God. Dear brothers and sisters, do not do that. Let us be a church that doesn't despise or ignore God's law, but a church that uses it to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation, the lover of our souls and our very willing Savior. If he is your only hope and plea before God, dear brothers and sisters, you are God's dearly and affectionately loved sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice um, that you have not hidden your law. You have not hidden your holiness. You've not hidden your character. You've not hidden those things which, um, which tell us what unholiness is and the things that you hate and expose our guilt. We are grateful that you have given us your law to expose the fact that we need a Savior. And we're grateful for the book of the law that you gave to Moses and that we now even get to be edified from, which talks about what it would look like for the penalty for sin to not yet have been paid. Lord, we are grateful, though, that you have sent us Christ who has paid that penalty and also kept the law. The law has now been fulfilled and satisfied. So, Lord, I pray that you would use the law to keep us from trusting in our own righteousness and to keep us trusting in Christ's righteousness and his alone. I pray that you would do that in us. In Jesus' name, amen.